Monday, according to my calendar, Monday today. You still here? <laughs> Me too. <laughs> so maybe just about, but it's lovely that you can keep going. It's not an easy thing to do a retreat. I mean, I'm sure you left behind a lot of your habitual gadgets, you know, to entertaining gadgets, going, watching, I don't know, I was just thinking, how, I know I can't really ask people, you know, like I was thinking, the question, how many of you are still using your iPhone to surf the internet? I'm not going to ask anybody, but just, <laughs> if you do, not supposed to, aren't you? Aren't they? No, no, that's right. So just you feel a bit guilty, that's all. So it's good, you feel a bit of regret and remorse. And I know, I know you always have probably a millions of good reason, totally sound and totally believable reason for doing so. But I still won't believe you. <laughs> so I'll leave it up to you. But be careful because it's really... Um, you know, I mean, I know from experience how easy it is to just, um, and unfortunately, to use the energy of the mind, heart, body, you know, for something maybe, maybe it's relieving tension, relieving, um, you know, um, maybe uh, rest, restlessness and so on. But you don't get to the dukkha then, do you see? As you go along... <laughs> I'm kind of teasing you a bit. You don't get to the point of complete despair. <laughs> well, at that moment, when you get to the point of complete despair, then there's a kind of a U-turn. Oops! You suddenly got get to know the other side of quote-unquote despair. You know, it can't just be like, oh, God, enough, enough is enough of this practice. You know, you have to come to that place. It's not. It's not a truth that many people appreciate. Because you have to have a lot of joy and a lot of good energy before you can go to so despair healthily. <laughs> you can't just go through the feeling of completely despair about hopelessness, about delusion. Like delusion is totally hopeless. But then here we are, <laughs> we are with it maybe for a lifetime, so how do we relate to it? And it's not hopeless in a kind of completely negative way because we know we, know we, still, we still have, um, you know, the world of our mind is not free from delusion, but there's plenty of good moments as well. You know, when I see Rosé doing his pottery, it's really nice. There's a lot of lovely moments in life where you can do things and enjoy life, you know, doing some creative things and so on. But there we are. You don't have to go to despair, don't worry. Life is already despairing enough for most people. <laughs> and what I mean by despair is just not so happy, you know. So we need to find out how to find our, how to, where the happiness lies. And that could take me on a long talk talking about where happiness lies, because most of our happiness is dependent on external things. We don't know 
much the happiness that's independent. Do we? So much of our happiness is needs something to be caused by. It needs to be caused by something else, you know. But the good news is that actually the mind wants to begin to let go and stop identifying with it and stop. You don't have to be an, an arahant to experience the happiness that's independent of external things. Just come to the place where you stop identifying with your mind and relate to it with compassion and wisdom. That's all. Not something too difficult. <clears throat> it's like having, you know, a bad arm, a painful arm. You're not going to throw it away and cut it off. You just use what you can. You know, maybe you cannot carry a heavy bag, but you can carry certain things like a glass of water. It's pretty good. Right? So our mind are not maybe completely are free from suffering and free from causing suffering around us in our life and in us. But at least we can um, transform the mind so that it's um, not so dependent on its, on its own movements, you know, of likes and dislike, want, not want, like, all these things which makes us in a way we are we are tied up to the mind through that you know we are like tied up through the its pattern and its program the program of the mind is simple you know we talked about it like more don't like get away go don't want you like more don't you know like today peace of mind more Restlessness and worry can't stand it. It's very simple. It's like the whole whole life is just about that. And sometimes our personal life seems to confuse everything because we, um, you know, we get so identified with ourselves that our likes and dislikes are not even seen anymore. It's just, this is right, this is wrong, and I do go to the right, which is what I like, usually. You know, what you feel is right is what you like, what you love, what you, uh, what you feel familiar with. So sometimes it's difficult to even see what, what you like, because you, you know, you're so committed to what you think is right, that you haven't had a chance to actually question, is this really right? You know, is this really right, or is just my my sense of what's right? You know, it's worth questioning, isn't it? But I feel a little bit distracted myself now. Do you know why? Because I received three notes tonight, <laughs> and look, a bowl full of questions. <laughs> There's one, and from a slightly conceited. Young person, I think he's young. I don't know. And I, I, the answer to this note, whoever wrote it, <laughs> is patience. You need to practice patience. That's all. It's great. I wish the retreatants go even more slowly for you. 
so you can really, really endure your training in patience <laughs> rather than to have a suggestion, a very clever suggestion, filter coffee with breakfast. Really, all these notes come from the fact that this person is actually missing out their filter coffee. <laughs> it's just a kind of polite note. It's not my fault, it's their fault. I think we should have coffee. Not because I want it, but I think because they need it. <laughs> you see the cheek, you know? Don't worry, I mean, I've seen... I've seen enough of the trick of my mind, you know, all the in and out, you know, I don't have to be psychic or anything like that. Anyway, it could be something quite different, or, you know, you'd be just really wholeheartedly hoping that it go a bit faster for their own benefit, of course, not for me, but for them. <laughs> oh God, the mind is really a liar. Now, get on to, uh, after that I would carry on my topic, but before I get tired, I think I'll answer the question and then we can see what happened after that. Could you please, and um, this is a bit personal maybe, do you mind if I, whoever wrote this, do you mind if I read them out and answer them? There's no, none of them are actually signed. <laughs> to my mind immediately, you coward. You know, I won't answer the question of those who are not signed, because I would not say the name. I'm kind of, you know, proper enough and well-trained enough to not necessarily mention the name, because I know one likes to be a little bit more, keep things confidential, but not even, you know, no responsibility. So here's the first one. Could you please talk about more about the ego and also inverted comma, um, our habit to compare ourselves and potential jealousy, please. It's a good question. And maybe also about letting go in general sense, for example, a past life, aging and relationship, a loved one who has died. Thank you for sharing da da da. Well, you could be here all night for that. You know, there's a whole program there <laughs> before I answer all this past life and letting go and. Uh, relationship, loved one, who has died, who has died? A good question, you know, who is dying? Who dies? You remember, I don't know if you, uh, you remember Stephen Levine? Yeah, not the generation, it's too, too young for you, too old. <laughs> Stephen Levine, American, lovely, wonderful American uh, Dharma teacher uh, who was married with Andrea Levine and uh, his main work with together with his wife was to bring consciousness and awareness to the, particularly in the realm of dying, the dying people or people who had had a lot of traumas and so on. And he wrote very beautiful books on practice. And one of them was Who Dies? Because he worked very much with, uh, um, oh gosh, her name came back and went, um, it was a woman who was a Christian actually, who taught him how to deal with the dying. Kubler-Rose, Kubler I don't know if any of you know of her. I can't remember her Christian name. but Anyway, about the ego, it's a good question. And we can just barely throw this in the bin because there is no ego, so... <laughs> I could cut it short, you know, it's like... It's, what are you talking about? <laughs> who, who has an ego? Have you found an ego anywhere? 
No, huh? have you found any go anywhere? Well, I'm going to give you another version. Okay, we do have an ego, but it's impermanent and satisfactory <laughs> and not you. It's nice, isn't it? I think all of us understood there was an ego somewhere. And then the Buddha said, it's not yours. And he said, well, for goodness sake, I feel it's really me and not her, not him. It's my ego, mine. But I, I really had, you know, sometimes we have, as, as you know, this kind of intuition about something that, you know, you don't quite know how to v verbalize it or describe it. But, and I remember thinking myself, actually, is there really no ego in Buddhism? You know, I mean, after teaching for years, anatta and all the rest of it, is there really no ego? I don't know. What does that mean? What is the ego anyway? You know, before we say there isn't or isn't, is there one? Well, how do you define the ego? So when I was trying to find the definition of self, ego, I couldn't find any. And I say, well, I don't know, actually, because I can't define self. So, but then I was reading, uh, I was listening, actually, to the teaching of Ajahn Panyawado, who is an English monk who lived with Ajahn Mahabua for about 40 years. And then he made, uh, he gave some teaching to Western monks who were really keen to hear him because he had so much wisdom, practice, and um, um, kind of experience, you know. So I was so pleased when I heard him say, somebody asking a similar question about ego, you know, he said, well, actually, you know, it's kind of very direct and very English, so kind of kind of polite, terribly polite, direct, but just simple. He just tells you what he knows, and that's it. He's not elaborating on anything. But he said, actually, you know, there's plenty, he says, Buddhism people, they say, oh, there's no ego, there is no ego, there is no ego. Actually, there's plenty of egos. They just come and go, that's all. It depends what you mean by ego, you know. So for me, for example, right, my ego can be said, well, I'm a nun teaching on the seat. When I go back to the monastery, I'm just a, a senior nun being with, living with nuns. I mean, it's about, you know, like a teacher or one of the sisters. When I go to my family, I'm just a sister they knew when I was 16. And that's not the same one as they see now. But they still relate, like if I was 16. Well, it's kind of making progress, but... <laughs> <laughs> Do you know, they, they're still coming back to... So, I feel the ego is... Um, it's an accumulation of habits that is um, constantly conditioned by uh, desire, uh, sort of connect us with the need of this mind and body, the need of this mind, me first. This is just my take on it, you don't have to believe me. But it's like, uh, it's an unfortunate program which is really binding because it blinds you, me first, you know, it's a blinding program. And then um, you know, it's, it's like you don't see beyond, you get stuck with me needs, me wants, me desire, and you don't even question, who is this me? Who is this me? Who is dictating me the way I should look after it? 
So at some point, I decided to look after my me with the, Buddhi the Buddhist teaching. So that changed my vista completely. Do you understand? Because if you don't have a teaching to help you to understand what is this me, then what do you do? You just um, travel through life with a program that's really painful because me, it's um, my experience, It's it's got a lot of fear there, a lot of desire, a lot of fear, a lot of desire, a lot of anxiety about losing this me, a lot of anxiety about, you know, seeing this me change. We want to not change, we want to keep that me, you know, exactly as we like it. You know, there's a me when I'm young, sort of teenagers, older, older, middle-aged, middle, middle, later age. <laughs> <laughs> then you have, you know, old, semi-old, and very old. So which one is my me? Which part of this body is me? You know, when you look at the body and made up of elements, you know, water, fire, earth, and air, when you look at your thoughts, which disappear as soon as you're mindful of them, when you look at your feeling, we can change every second. You can have different kind of mood feelings and so on. Who are you? Who are we? It's good to have a refuge. That's a kind of the, the, the kind of part of you that is really anchored in, in the reality of this life. Because without refuge, you know, without something that we feel really secure and safe, life is really difficult. And the security and safety that the Buddha uh, teaches is, for example, the first security is to be really ethical. You know, to be a good person, to be an honest and have a person with integrity. It's beautiful when the Buddha says, you know, somebody who is uh, ethical, who is, you know, following uh, the standard of ethic, a natural standard of ethic, wherever this person goes, people respect them. Wherever this person goes, people is really appreciated and loved. Not, not maybe, not by everybody, maybe not by your husband, wife, or children because they don't see your goodness that's the trouble it's like seeing your nuns you know it's the same <laughs> it's like being the mother you know? try to be really good they see nothing you know no i'm just joking they're really good now <laughs> very good but you know <laughs> so um this uh, teaching of the buddha you know wherever you go if you really want to be a good person it doesn't come on its own. It comes with commitment to the good. It's, it's not something you can lie forever. You can have no integrity, no sense of uh, responsibility for your actions. I personally learned the hard way. I thought I was very honest and very kind of had integrity. And I thought I had a, you know, quite responsible person and so on. But, you know, the uh, when you live in community, you get a real detailed uh, picture of yourself, whether you through your action, through your speech, through your, um, you know, your thoughts, you know, you, you begin to see that what you think you are is actually not necessarily true. What you think, what you assume yourself to be is not true. In my community, I feel only the sisters could really shake the status quo in me, only living with a mirror, 
was I able to realize that who I thought I was my, was not exactly what I thought I was. You know, so you have to be careful because other people can project onto you their own wishes and desire, their own discontent and misery. But at the same time, you get a sense, you, your mind is shaken by just the fact that people move a little bit, question, make you question. Am I really that kind? Am I really, do I really like these people? You know? I'm always amazed. I think it's, you know, any psychologist probably will know or how many people have said that too, you know, that they said something like, you know, I'm really, you know, I'm really kind to these people. You know, I really love them. But funny, they don't treat me very well or they don't really respect me. Also. And very often I say, well, what do you think about these people? What is your... What is your perception of these people? And then they kind of vomit a whole kind of negative stuff, you know. And then you say, well, it's no wonder that people don't feel very well with you. I'm not saying you shouldn't. It's just a stage in life where we, we still have a lot of stuff. You know, we think we love people. And actually, we don't love them. If I ask any of you what you think about your mum, you'll say, oh, I love my mum. And yet, if I decide, how do you feel when you're with your mum? Different, isn't it? And the people I know, they know what, who am I talking about. Very different. Some people hate their mum, but they still think they love her. or hate themselves, they still think they love themselves. There was a time I remember I used to go to watch Sumedo, and he was on a high seat, I was on the floor, and I was telling him wholeheartedly how was my life at that moment, you know. And I had a half an hour tirade about all the miserable perception about myself. I'm terrible, I'm awful, I'm this, I can't do this. I mean, you know, really mad. Because <coughs> I kept teaching people to be really nice and friendly with it, with themselves, <laughs> constructive and all the rest of it. And when it came to me, you know, it was like one sort of negativity after another. And he looked at me totally puzzled, you know. And I, I don't know what kind of advice he gave me, probably just love myself and <laughs> practice metta. <laughs> But on another hand, now, now, you know, just to show you it works, you know, just keep on working on your meditation, it does work. Now the thought of telling myself that I'm not a good person or I am not, you know, criticizing myself, I'm not saying a constructive critical mind, but just criticizing myself in a negative way or, you know, seeing myself in a nasty way or I just think I would just actually sort of injecting myself with poison. Do you understand? That's as bad as I feel about it. And yet, there was a time in my life when I was injecting myself with poison, truly, and feeling extremely dignified with it, you know. My sense of self was completely associated with the sense, I'm critical of myself and it's a good thing. The critical mind has a kind of edge that we like about 
It can feed a lot of gossip, and we love gossip, doesn't we? She's like this and like that, and you know, do you know what he did? And a horrible person, blah blah blah. We can easily go into this kind of mode of using the mind to destroy another mind, using one's mind to destroy one's own mind. So it takes a lot of training to actually support life, you know, to actually make sure that the life you carry is supported, the life you carry is nurture, resourced. It's hard work to be a human being, isn't it? Hard work. It's amazing that we still, you know, most of us have a kind of, um, you know, a real sense of wanting to improve on ourselves because many people, you know, might just give up. And yet, when we meet the Buddha Dharma, when you meet the teaching of the Buddha, then there's an enormous amount of the spectrum of possibility is so gigantic in terms of self-development, our development of our mind and body, that it's just an incredible treasure that you suddenly discover. The constant possibility of evolving and developing and turning into the beautiful human being that we would like to be one day. And maybe we're not, we're not this human being straight away. It takes a lot of courage to plow through the unskillful habits of our life. You know. I still remember the time when, you know, I was developing meta practice, trying to really be good and kind, you know. You have to go through a lot of, you have to have a lot of courage because people do not always understand how wonderful you are inside. <laughs> you know, that's a trouble. And I learned that the hard way. But after that, it makes you really tough, you know. It means like, who cares what people think? You just keep on going, you know. I remember still at Chitters in the dark morning of chores, morning chores, doing an old mop, really all grey and stinking, and cleaning the floor of the scullery, of the monk's scullery now. I mean, at the time it was a common common room. And uh, I was really, um, you know, every strike, every stroke, I was saying, may all being be well, <laughs> may all being be happy. I'm not joking, you know, it's not, not fun. May all being be well, may all being be happy. And at some point, through my incredible, incredible dedication to do the good, I had forgotten there was a very sweet nun in the corner who was doing flowers. And she herself had her own problem. <laughs> and her projection was I was cornering her and telling her something out of this, you know. So we had a little bit of misunderstanding at that point. So I had to disappear with my mop and all my kind of <laughs> And then it carried on through the day. I'm sure the kind of bad feeling went on and on for hours on end after that. You know, so I was mopping with Meta. She was doing flower to kind of ornament, you know, ornaments for the shrine and so on. So two goods meet and they just turn into bad. Isn't it sad? It's such a miserable life. <laughs> So you need to learn to train and to kind of bear with the most horrible situation <laughs> at some point. 
two people dedicated to do the good and the misunderstanding in the middle spoils everything. So if you have any problem in your life, just double check what's happening. You know, if you feel misunderstood, unappreciated, unloved, criticized, you know, put down, all that sort of thing, this is normal. Don't turn yourself into a victim. This is life as it is, you know. People have kind of mind do that, you know. But we have a high expectation of life, don't we? It's amazing how much we expect from life. I saw this um, in a very sweet way when my father was 90-something. And uh, before he was 90 or 91, he was really bright still, you know, quite bright. He could walk, he could uh, entertain us with wonderful stories and so on. And then suddenly he, his mind just kind of went a bit, you know, it's just kind of lost his bearing with reality. And uh, when I met him, I just came from the States where I was living at the time to help my sister who was asking a bit of support. And you know, when I met my dad, who I love, absolutely adored, and um, I met him, and it's really interesting what happened to my mind. It's like, okay, he's lost his mind, you know, a bit, quite a bit. And the part of me, I just relaxed, you know, I just relaxed. I realized a mountain of normal level of expectation about my dad had just gone. They died. And we don't know that we have a lot of expectation of life until something happened that stops you from imagining that things could happen in a better way. Do you understand? So suddenly, I had so much fun with my dad. It's really playful. We started playing with all the little creatures he has in his mind and all the little things. And I didn't mind just adapting to him and his stories and all that. And then suddenly he would come back to normal and we have normal conversation. And then at some point he'll just went back to, you know, there's a red guy coming this way and that way and, you know, and telling stories that are completely phantasmagoric. And he say, oh, well, you start having a dialogue with him, dreaming with him together. And I personally thought it was fantastic. There was no problem. It's just, you know, a human being who didn't, wasn't in control of his mind anymore. But still totally lovable. And really interesting as well, not just lovable, it was fun. I mean, in this kind of dementia, he had a, a lot of... Uh, <laughs> he was still the way he used to be. <laughs> quite eccentric and interesting and quite sort of excited about all the life inside there in him. <coughs> quite passionate about it, you know, by the little characters that inhabited his mind. I'm not saying that is the case with everybody, but what I'm talking about is that we have no idea how much we expect from life, how much we carry, the stress we carry regarding expectation. Do you understand? In Buddhism, would I never talk about expecting anything? You know, 
without simply talk about the way things are and using that knowledge to relate to life in a way that is more peaceful. But we have learned to put a very high standard of expectation in our life and that can be incredibly stressful. Because, um, you know, if you really want to know your ego, there's only one way you can know your ego very, very clearly. The only thing that hurts in you is me, I. I know, it's kind of disappointing, isn't it? The only thing that hurts is me. If, the, if you're not attached to me, you don't hurt. You feel, but you don't hurt. I'm talking about the hurt that comes from this reactivity that wants to hurt others, you know, that kind of hurt. You may feel sad, you may feel, you know, disappointed, you may feel, but it's not hurting, you just feel this, different. Hurting is a reaction, okay, that would have expected things to be different. You know, not getting what you want, you didn't get what you wanted. You know, hurting is that part of the mind that just is stuck on the first noble truth, dukkha. You get what you don't want and you don't get what you want. It's, a, it's like the, you know, the simple thing, if it's as nice you want more, if it's not nice you want less. If you really have an explorer mind, you can really explore your life with this pattern, simple kind of uh, arrows, you know, signpost. It's quite fascinating how everything runs on the same kind of patterns. It goes from, you know, having a thought you don't like in the mind, or, um, you know, your knees hurting, uh, or um, a feeling of... Um, whatever, jealousy or envy, and so on. Most things are totally bearable when I is not involved. Now, it's not so easy to get the I uninvolved. Most things. And sometimes you cannot see certain mental states as long as the identification is too strong. I remember the word, the, 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 the word jealousy. You know, being a proud person, like many of us, the idea of being jealous was so embarrassing to think I'm jealous. I could never, I could never really accept or uh, tell anybody that I, I was experiencing jealousy. I didn't even know what jealousy was, actually. I never knew exactly what jealousy was, as clearly as I did later on. But what happened, most of the thing that stopped me from seeing jealousy and pretending that was not jealous was the fact that, how can I say, um, it was so embarrassing to tell anybody or even to tell to myself. My conceit could not take a self that is jealous. <laughs> so you can hide it for a long, long time. And then one day, fortunately, through the practice, I just had a feeling in my, in my kind of solar plexus, in the gut, solar plexus, and it was, I say, oh, this is jealousy. This is jealousy. 
And the moment I saw it, it's almost like the sense of I had disappeared with it. You know, it was just jealousy, just a feeling. And jealousy is the antidote of mudita. You know, jealousy is wanting something somebody doesn't have, you know. Whereas mudita is being happy for something that people have, that you like to have, but you're happy for them to have it too. That's mudita. Jealousy, envy, I mean, kind of larger package of jealousy, you know, feeling envious, feeling jealous, feeling, you know. So you can see where the practice is leading you. The practice is leading you little by little. You kind of, um, you know, take uh, layer upon layers of this me who is full of fear, who is embarrassed, who doesn't want to be seen in a bad light, hate being seen in a bad light. Ego can't stand being seen in the bad light. It will lie, it will harm other people, he would mistreat other people because he don't want it don't, you don't don't want to be seen under the bad uh, a negative light. You know. It's really cruel this me that is caught up in itself. Because we can see the me right here. Or you can see the you don't see the me, you just are it. So it's good that you see people coming to meditate because in a way you're peeling the layers that just cover again and again. It's called ignorance, you know, avidya. The layers that just prevent you from seeing the truth as it is. And then because we have layers upon layers of me, then we become also very clever at describing me. You noticed. I just I really enjoy, you know, when people go on in a long story about how they are and how they do things and why they slap that guy in the face and, you know, and because of this and it was really important, blah, blah, blah. And all that just to make me uh, sort of give me the sense that this person is really good and really it's the fault of somebody else. So we live with a great liar of a mind. Don't ever trust it, you know. Ever trust your thought. Never. <laughs> that doesn't leave you with much, you know. You know, I love Jack Confia, uh, not Jack, Joseph, 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 um, is this your name? Oh, Joseph um, Goldstein. Goldstein, that's right. When he said, and it's not just about thought, but thought and, and um, uh, kind of um, talking is not so different because thought is actually, speech is really thought breaking into, you know, it's like just thought and speech are closely linked together. What you think you can say, you know. And he said that he took a vow at some point, you know, a determination to stop talking about other people. And he said, after a few hours, I really had nothing to say. <laughs> <laughs> Has no more anything to say to anybody. <laughs> so, thought, <laughs> it's kind of fun, isn't it? And then, same with thought in a way, I mean, I might not be as funny as Joseph, but the same with thought, you know, when we stop indulging in thinking, 
we get very frightened that our mind can be empty, empty of me, empty of self. We're not very good at living without anybody in, in town. <laughs> We're not good, are we? We're frightened to be with nobody here. There's nobody here. It's empty. Oh, my God. Do you know? But actually, I feel more like there's nobody here, and I feel really happy. I can tell you, oh, my God, what a liberation to live without that kind of shadow there, you know. Always fearful of everything, and always ready to lie just to defend itself, you know. But you can see it doesn't mean that things go completely. You, now you can see it when it when it when it happens, you can see it clearly, and you can begin to have. It's almost like a you know a humorous relationship with delusion. You know you don't take yourself so seriously, for example. You know, if I had been moping with Meta and all the rest of it, took myself really seriously, I would have had a fight probably. You know, bang her on the head and <laughs> scream and then shouted. God knows what. The same with her. She was quite restrained in a way. She just told me that she didn't want to be pushed into the, the gar garbage bin. <laughs> That's all, you know. I mean, I'm, I don't know if there was any garbage bin, but basically in the shelf that was next to her, you know. Because I was so concentrated on my meta practice. <laughs> so we are often misunderstood in life, you know. That's one of the great tragedies of being human. You know, that's why we, you know, that, I think that's how relationships are done. When somebody understands you are lost, maybe you just want to hang around with them for a few years, you know. It's not even love, it's just like. Gosh, and at last, a nice person was actually on the same page with me, from what I hear. And I was married myself for 20, 10 years, so I definitely find somebody who was on the same page, kind of, and not on the same page. <laughs> but, yeah, life is a cruel activity, you know, it's not fun <laughs> to have a brain <laughs> at least when you see the you know but the funny thing is that animals share so much with us you know I think they must have a brain too because they function a bit like me I noticed when I was in Devon I was a senior nun there I did quite a bit of time you know of looking at my misery and reflecting on the existential reality of life and what a mad thing to find oneself in Devon, you know. Not even Devon shower cream next to me, but just like with a weird, you know, sense of what am I doing here, you know. I remember I had a little Virgin Mary uh, kind of icon, you know. I hated Buddhism, even though I was senior nun, you know. I thought Buddhism is just, Buddhism is how, I mean, not, not the teaching of the Buddha, but just a whole package of a religious Buddhism, you know. I felt that was just, uh, I just don't want to see anything. I don't want to see a Buddha. Just give me a stone. I went to my reactivity. I had a lot of kind of rebellious um, liberation front kind of experience, you know, when I was going to liberate my mind, even from Buddhism altogether. 
And I remember looking at the Virgin Mary little icon, and I said, "What? Well, that's the only thing that gave me a sense of connection with the divine. <laughs> kind of will bring me back to something probably from past life. God knows what I was, you know. But maybe I was a Christian nun or, was, you know, whatever it was. Because I wasn't brought up in a religious family particularly, but there was something kind of nice, gold. There was some gold in it. I like the idea of gold. A beautiful piece of wood and like an icon. Anyway, um, yeah, I lost, you know. So when you are in a kind of, you know, watching and observing life, human life, you can see how things kind of unfold. And I was just going to talk about the cat we had. Uh, I can't remember her name now, but she went to Chittas after I left. Nobody remember her? Is it Pansy? No, no Pansy. <laughs> She's the one. She was black with a lot of fluffy hair. Eh? Gompo. Gompo, that's right. And Gompo, she had a, t I think it's a Tibetan name, you know. And Gompo, we call it often the Marilyn because she was so beautiful, you know. <laughs> and Gompo, when I was kind of in my deep meditative mind, you know, be waiting to teach people coming, I look at Gompo and I look and I, I notice every time with Gompo and I, we were having, we were training. There was a training going on with her and she was dancing and she was training and dancing with me. So I had, I had, I had. A, it was wonderful. I had some people had made this kind of uh, thread, yellow, red, purple, pink, and so on. That kind of hang out, hang down, and it was a stick, you know, a nice stick. And at some point, um, I realized I could have fun with Gompo because she was so stupid. You know, she, <laughs> she just did everything I asked her to do. Well, we had another cat. She didn't look nothing like beautiful like her, but she was much more wise and sensible. You know. <laughs> So Gompo, at some point, I had so much fun because I would just go up and she would jump and I go right and she go and right she go and I turn around and turn around she go and run and up, down, up, round. <laughs> so it was so much fun. So we had a quite a deep relationship. And at some point I noticed that every time she was unhappy, she was absolutely, she would be running straight to her plate of food. Does that remind you anybody? Don't we do that? I mean, it can be the TV, it can be whatever, you know, something. As soon as we're upset, I'm just not, I just don't know what you're doing. But I remember, the, immediately the mind would conjure up something nice to do to forget about being upset. Amazing, isn't it? It's really powerful. But it's nothing wrong with it, it's just being human, you know? But, you know, enduring stupidity is not a fun thing. Living with consciously with avidya, it's not a piece of cake, is it? Consciously with Avija. That was my greatest misery and, and dukkha, was to see my mind acting stupidly when I knew better than that. Do you understand? But the habits are too strong to actually get there yet. Then you get very disappointed. The whole, the whole drawback of being disappointed because you didn't act on what you told people for 10 days, you know. As if you turn into a saint because you taught for 10 days, you know. It's like this expectation again. If I really knew what I was doing, I would never do that. 
And I told them to do what this and that. Uh, and I knew at the time that that was the right thing and so on. And then I couldn't do it. I'm doing better now. It's okay. It's integrated more fully. <laughs> because, and I asked one such in Sumedhu actually, say, I said, you know, it's interesting. Because when we teach, when I teach, you know, I really I teach from what I know. And, um, you know, it's, I, I, it's not like I'm lying anything to you, but the mind is very clear and you can see the Dhamma very clearly, right? And I say, how come then we go back to life and uh, it's not as clear, you know, it's not that the Dhamma is not clear, but the mind is not as clear. And he said, well, this is the same for everybody. You know, you can be teaching, giving wonderful teaching, but your life itself is not necessarily adjusted to the knowledge you have, you know. You're still working on integrating and being this person who knows all these things. You know, so you need to be very, um, you know, in a way, it's quite humbling in a way, do you know? It's be the, the other side of it. It's like people, you go back to your, from the retreat home, and people say, hello, how was your retreat? Wonderful, wonderful. And then you do a little something, you know, you can spill the beans or spill the water or whatever. Say, wow, you know, 10 years of meditation, 10, uh, 10 days of meditation, that's all you can do, you know, just kind of pour down the milk in the wrong place and uh, <laughs> make a lot of noise when you walk and so on. So being very critical of you. That's again the, the misery of life, the paradox. You know, you do good for 10 days, you practice diligently, don't eat one meal, a, you only eat one meal a day, and then you go home and people start telling you that if you've really been a good meditator, you should behave much, much better than what they see. Sad, isn't it? Life is a bit sad, really. So, I think I finished on this, and maybe um, letting go. Oh. <laughs> I was just about to let go, and then suddenly I've got to pick up something. How many people are interested in letting go topic? Can you show a, a show of hand? So I can see if it is really worthwhile to pick up something or not. I'm half joking, of course, I will say. But I don't want to bore you, you know, if you're not that interested. So letting go, to be it's a word that we hear every, every, everywhere now. Let go, let go, let go. Ajahn Sumedho is lovely, it's very simple. You know, you, you hold this, you know, you hold this, you know, it's tight, you know. It's like, oh, you imagine everything you experience can be like held tightly like this. And then you drop it. God, that feels better. You know, you say, oh, 10 days of dropping things are really good. At the end of the day, the mind feels wonderful. At the end of 10 days, you feel like you're a feather going through the, through the sky, you know, at the end of 10 days. And then you arrive in London and you're picking up that huge stone again of me. So this is all what it is. Letting go. Very often... Rather than to know what letting go is, it's much more interesting to see what is not letting go. What is not letting go? How, why don't we let go? You know, what is preventing the letting go? And then you'll know what letting go is. You know, very often there are many 
other factors that prevent us from let go, from letting go. People ask me what I can't, I can't let go more quickly. One thing, you, you might be just in a hurry and impatient. That will not help you to let go. Because at that moment, what you need to let go is impatience. <laughs> you see, you're still looking at the thing you have to let go quickly. But actually, before you let go of that thing, you have to work on your impatience. Or you want to let go, but you haven't seen that behind your letting go, there's a desire, desire to get rid of something. So, you know, you want to let go, but really, it's more, I want to get rid of this. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> yes? I'm really dying to let go of the self, you know. Buddha says it's empty. But then you keep recreating it all the time. So, you know, that uh, that kind of mind that uh, keeps reconfiguring, uh, reconfigurate itself, reconfigure itself into a me, an image, what I think I am, again and again. Right? So, um, <clears throat> we have the desire to get rid of, the desire to... Um, go quickly. We also have blindness. We just don't see what we want to let go. And we get worried about not knowing what we want to let go. So there's a lot of mental states and emotional states associated with the inability to be skilled in letting go. Do you understand? There's a lot of uh, factors that prevent you from letting go. You begin to let go more rapidly when you have come to the place where you're really, um, in a way, cooled out, you know. It's like you let go when you stop holding. It's so easy. A lot of things is like impatience keeps it here. Um, you know, wanting to get rid of things is still holding. Not liking something is still holding. Wanting things to be different is still holding. You know? Preferring one thing over another is still holding. Comparing things and wanting to be different is still holding. So you can imagine how many things actually preventing us from allowing things to go. Sometimes, when you've forgotten about all these things that I just described, you're just kind of forgetting yourself for a second and you've let go a massive amount of stuff, you know, it's like... Did I go? I was really not well a minute ago. You just forgotten yourself for a minute, and suddenly, oh, it's gone. How did that happen? Do you understand? So many things can happen in that way when you don't work at it. You know, a lot of our work is a preparation to stop working. <laughs> you know, a lot of things you prepare yourself to actually come to the point where I don't need to work anymore. It's happening by itself. It's like dancing, guitar, music. You work very, very hard to put do your scale or to do your plies and kick the leg up in the air, grand car and all the rest of it. And at some point, you just don't have to think about it. It's just happened by itself. And you flow. There's a flow now. When you play music, you have beautiful flowing music beautiful flowing bodily movement and so on, right? But if we're still at the stage where, you know, we feel you have to really constantly kind of 
put me in the middle and especially for our just ordinary daily life it's difficult to let go so one of the main thing that allows you to let go is total complete commit complete commitment to patience with your mind patience comes back hello it's all right and then you don't touch and it goes comes back again and it goes as somebody said many years ago at Chittas, I remember it's like as long which i think was true as long as there is uh, enough fuel for something to come up so the person said it's because in those days it's not really true but it's because we still have karma with that particular object of the mind there's still enough fuel for it to come back we might not want it to come back do you understand but the habit is still strong enough and has enough fuel to sort of reappear again and at some point eventually it will be without fuel without strength without force behind it because you are little by little disidentifying with this particular thing so let's say, for example, um, you know, well, simple things like at first you think you can't live without pizza. I mean, at least for a few days. Do you remember the story of the pizza I mentioned to you? Was it to you? No? No, it was a pizza story. I would die. No, but maybe I need to find another example then. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's like oh gosh, nothing really comes to mind. Uh, well, whatever fascinates you in life, something that might fascinate you. I mean, I don't have a huge amount that fascinate me. I have to say anymore. <laughs> anyway, you can think for yourself something that really enjoy and still very much like to have around and like to, you know keep with you or whatever right well you know at first you think you can't live without it you know think of something you can't live without all of you different maybe different things right eh? chocolate I can live without fortunately I won't be able to live with that. No, I mean, I'm prepared to live without almost anything. I mean, after so many years of working on it, it does, it does kind of work, you know. But of course, I cannot predict the future. So there may be in the future things that I don't know if I can live without, you know. Then we'll know. So, but things actually, little by little, you find that you disidentify yourself. It's like they stop being me. Mine, me, mine. The Buddha says so many times, it's not you, not me, not mine, not yours, not you, not. And it does work. You might not think it works, but actually it does work. This is what we call liberation, liberating the mind. It's like you help every object to stop sticking to the mind. You stop them from constantly creating the illusion that without them you won't be able to survive right 
so you know you can survive. Many things like that. So how many of us worry about being in a situation where we will be without what we think is absolutely necessary for me to live and I won't have it at some point? And we see, we're terrified at that sort, by that sort, don't we? Yeah? Well, maybe that will be off record. Well, for me at some point, you know, I have a... Uh, <laughs> I know, you know. Yeah, so many things, I'm just saying this to you because many of us are inhabited by fears that are kind of initiated or caused by the sense that we can't go without certain things and we never question. You see, one of the things that helps you to disidentify with the thing that makes you unhappy is a questioning. It's like the questioning is like the thing that unglue little by little your stickiness, you know, it unglues it. Like for example, you feel, you know, I would say, you feel very miserable, and you just have to use a, a very simple thing, who is suffering? Consciousness has the ability to really respond to wisdom, you know? Consciousness can actually wake up and show you things as they are. So who, who is unhappy? And suddenly, there's nobody there. It's just unhappiness, yeah. Don't want to deny that. But if you get the eye kind of stuck with that, then you got your whole history in there, which could go back to years and years and years of unhappiness. You drag all this with you. I remember when I was angry, I noticed that as soon as I was angry with something, it would start, the mind would go on automatic, you know, and she did this and she did that and she did this. I remember everything that this person had said that was really made me miserable even if it was 20 years ago. And then I would kind of go back into the present moment, fortunately, and say, who is thinking? Nobody there. It's memories, you know, accumulation of memories that we carry on. And our teacher, Ajahn Sumedho, we had a T-shirt with this on there, you know, like we have the T-shirt of Ajahn Amaro now, which says, uh, a life without sila is like driving a car without brake. It was very good teaching. Even the French took it well. <laughs> I asked a French friend of mine, you know, she wanted a t-shirt. I said, you sure want a t-shirt? Oh, yes. Does it, it's really meaningful for you. It's really like it. I was surprised because the idea of being ethical for the French is they might like to be, but they don't want to be told, you know, to be ethical. I guess it's probably everybody here as well. You know, so Ajahn Sumedho has another kind of uh, saying, says, um, yesterday is a memory, tomorrow is the unknown, and now is a knowing. You know that one, don't you? No? You did not know? Well, now you know. <laughs> and then, so you can use this in your daily life, you know, when you are just waiting for the bus and going crazy about being late for an appointment, then you use your ability to have faith in the mystery of life, okay?
Maybe you'll be late, but maybe we won't. Give it a chance. Okay, so yesterday is a memory. Tomorrow is the unknown. It's very freeing, you know, isn't it? Unknown. What is associated with unknown in my history? Nothing. It's uh, forgotten. But you say, you know, um, well, finished and now is a knowing. Now is a knowing. There's no history to that. You notice that? You can't really remember now is knowing. Because it's now. It doesn't go behind. And most of us carry a huge amount of memory with us, you know, which do not exist anymore. But it sounds like, well, how do you do that? You know, it doesn't exist anymore. What does it mean, you know? Well, it's, it's just the training of the mind is about that. The training of the mind is about, you know, it's a memory, but it will so be so stubborn. It will say it's a memory, but I still suffer from that. Even it's past, finished. So what we are dealing with sometimes is memory in the body, like the trauma of a memory. This we can still, you know, it doesn't go so quickly, trauma. You know, so the memory of thought and so on that can go quite fast. But the trauma in the physical form is quite not easy to move out of that, you know. So if that is the case for some of you, you just have to start doing it in such a way that you help this trauma to, um, you know, this memory, traumatic memory, to um, little by little to leave you, to let go, to let go of it, you know, little by little. And I always, I'm always kind of amazed how life can help us, you know, if we're open to it. You know, situation, people you meet, books you read. You, you know, sometimes it's quite amazing. It's almost like being guided, you know, by some strange forces. When your mind is open and willing to, open to help, to open to be supported. You know, we support ourselves, but also, who is self? <laughs> Do you know what I mean? We say, where is the mind? Where is the mind that I have? I have now. Where does it begin and end? Your mind. Have you ever not? Have you ever asked? Where does it begin and end? You know. So these things we need to challenge a little bit. Otherwise, life is not fun. We need to challenge. We need to question. Ask question. That's the best way to challenge that unquestioned feeling that I am, is my only identity, right? In fact, we don't need an identity. And if you hang out with good teachers, you know, um, the image is the first thing we have to knock off, you know, in other tradition that I know. The image, the me image, which is such a powerful force usually made of fear you know the image i'm a good person and frightened to be a bad one you know i'm polite i'm proper i'm correct and so on and then that image is frightened of anything challenging that so in the end with buddhism you just the image you just don't have any image it's so wonderful when i stop having you know to struggle with image Suddenly, what was left is just being human. And you can't even explain what it is to be human. 
very different than just to fear image being part being being who you think you are or what the mind create you know suddenly you're just a human being you know you're not up or down or you know it's just as human we're all in the same place there's no brown or white or green green or yellow or orange robes or whatever just we we have what we share our humanity that made a huge difference for me but you know that only came when i stopped fearing um it's like the fear i don't know i mean it's really difficult to explain sometimes you know it's like well, I used to put this more question of something just goes, you know, rather than what goes is actually hmm. it's really a relationship with yourself that I'm talking oneself is not with people. It's a relationship with yourself becomes a um you relate to the reality of your being, you know, you just relate. You don't relate anymore to an image. That way is so freeing. Because you don't relate to something that does not exist. Only fleetingly. You know, an image is only a passing thing. And it's made of just a thought, so it's not really solid. But suddenly, when you just relate to the, your humanness, humanity, then you feel a lot more compassion for other people, for one thing. But it's not the compassion that makes other people like weak or victimized. On the contrary, I think it's a strengthening realization. And through this, you can relate to that which is strong in people rather than weak and victimized by life. That's what I noticed, you know. So you don't see people strong because they have high status or money or weak because they have low status and no money, you know, anymore. There's that kind of barrier to start going because it's not, um, how can I say, uh, that world of relating to reality doesn't encompass, you know, doesn't kind of, it's not kind of caught up in that kind of perception when you relate to humanity. But you have to let go of quite a lot of fear to come to that point, you know. Because it's it's a relation which is relationship which is natural, you know, it's not like a big thing. It's natural, it's something that happens normally. It's normal and natural. And uh, we are often caught up with a sense of, you know, me being better or worse and so on. Talking about ego being better or worse, the Buddha has a wonderful teaching. He said, whether you think you're better your worst or your equal, it's all conceit. When I read this, I relaxed a lot, you know. I stopped worrying about being better or worse. Or <laughs> I, I dropped a whole program, you know, about being better or worse or equal. And there was a huge amount of stories about around attached to all these things. Huh? Don't you? Lots of story about I'm better than her, worse than him. Or not, you know, she's not better than me. I'm better than her. You know, I think I'm equal to her or him. It's all conceit. It's so nice. I mean, with the word conceit, you just drop it. You know. 
Anyway, it's getting very late again. So at the end of the day, we get a bit tired, don't we? <laughs> so I'm just getting a little bit tired, I think. So, you know, you start kind of... Uh, I'm, I'm still interested in what I'm saying. But um, as any question, I can stay here all night for you. I don't, no problem, you know. <laughs> I'm tired, but I'm kind of quite awake as well. You know, when you teach, you have a lot of energy. And if you have any kind of important questions before you go to sleep, and you just don't want any nightmare if you hadn't asked her, <laughs> you can ask me now. Maybe we shall have a little bit more light, sister, because I think we're all falling asleep otherwise. That's it, yeah. So do you have anything you want to ask? Any? No. Kind of given up, haven't we? Kind of let go. We let go of everything. And if I told you, well, maybe we should, we could sit just the way you are for the next two hours. The mind will be so horrified that you know, <laughs> it would have only one way. I don't mind. It's okay. <laughs> That's how great teachers teach. You know, Ajahn Chah used to teach like that. You know talk and talk and talk for hours and hours and hours I mean I'm just nothing compared to that you know? and not only that but the trouble is sometimes I think we, the, the Thai monks have been highly educated by western monks when they come to the west because it's part of their tradition they can they, normally it's their work you know they, their inner work is like you keep talking until you drop more or less <laughs> You know, and everybody is actually enduring. You're enduring because endurance is like a big word in the forest tradition. You endure and endure until you drop. <laughs> and now when I see the monks, in the early years, there was quite a bit of that, you know. They kind of treated England like they did the northeast of Thailand, you know. But now they have much shorter talks, you know, fortunately. <laughs> But I'm not sure I have learned that myself. What time is it? It's long time. Yeah? Quarter past eight, eight thirty. Let's say two. Oh my God! Got over an hour. So I wish you good night, and we're going to do the closing homage. Maybe a chant. I thought of a chant for you. Sharing merits. Have you shared merits ever in your life? In some tradition, is almost the thing you do in every every time you start open the book chant, finish your ceremony, you share merit all the time. It's very beautiful because it takes you out of me, you know, when you share merit. In the Tibetan tradition, they have that, something I really love, because you, you actually think about others. Yeah, so you take your book, it's on page... Um, Oh yeah, that's right. I keep forgetting because we're not in the official. I'm not in the temple, you see. So I kind of. So Sister Kemaka is kind of finishing the, the you know part of the ceremony of giving a talk and so Namotasa, and then she finishes by saying, "What do you say? Do you remember?" <laughs> that was a rot that was a rotten talk. No, no. <laughs> I should never do that to Ajahn. Sister Kemaka was so polite. 